This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, season three, East Coast edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio/about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. Thanks so much for listening. All right. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are really excited to be interviewing Caddy Huertas, who is a multidisciplinary artist born in Colombia and currently based in Washington, D.C. She holds an MFA from MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, and her work explores identity, folklore, and double standards, among other subjects. She likes combining analog and digital mediums. And her work has been featured by Adobe, Creative Review, Creative Boom, Behance, Board Panda, Tumblr, Visco, 21 Wallpaper, and Boom. And previously, she's worked at Nickelodeon as part of the launch team and at NBC News as an editorial designer for today. Currently, she's a designer and art director at The Washington Post. Caddy, uh, welcome to be on the studio. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited. And we were just talking behind the scenes that we actually didn't realize there was a MICA connection when we reached out, which is cool since we all went to uh, MICA in Baltimore, but not at the same time. Yeah, I love MICA. I wish I had gone there for undergrad. I actually went to undergrad to uh, FIU in Florida, which is a state school. So mm-hmm. I definitely wanted that for real art school feel. That's why I decided to go to MICA for grad school. Oh, awesome. Well, yeah, that sort of leads into our first question, which we like to ask most of our guests, um, which is just to give us a little bit of a backstory into your own um, creative career path thus far. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your early experiences as an artist, um, what led you to want to pursue this as a career path? Yeah, um, so I knew I always wanted to be an artist, but no one in my family was creative. uh, So I didn't know that it was like an actual career path. Uh, I was always drawing and painting. And when I was very little, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I knew that was like an actual career. But then as I started growing up, I realized that being an artist was like feasible. So I started my undergrad career in Colombia and I did two years there of visual arts and that kind of like involved everything. It wasn't an art school, so it had like commercial art, but also like fine art and even like uh, animation and video all into it. And so uh, I did two years there and then I moved to Miami and 
I kind of like stopped studying for a year. And when I went back to school, it was uh, to FIU for arts. And again, FIU is a state school in Florida and it's not an art school. So art careers are kind of like left a little uh, like, I don't know, they don't pay as much attention to art as they do to other careers. So like our students, our studios weren't as great as like, let's say like the business building or yeah, yeah. law school or something like that. So it was like a good experience, but I kind of like was craving more uh, because I feel like I'm super driven and I kind of like, com- I'm kind of like competitive in a good way in that sense. So I feed off like the energy around me. And so like when things are kind of like pared down, um, I feel like I'm not pushing myself as hard as I should be. Uh, but when I was in FIU, that's when I started painting and kind of like finding my voice. And at the same time, I started playing with a digital tablet that I got as a gift. And I started posting everything on Tumblr. And then I got my first commission. Yeah. <laughs> Tumblr and Flickr, which I mean, Flickr was so good. And then they updated and it got yeah. so bad. Like mine still exists. I never closed it, but I never upload. I, I think it's been like years since I posted anything in there. I think same here. <laughs> But it was so good because it was truly like for people interested in art. It was like more creative than, let's say, Instagram. Yeah, I think I got my first commission either from Tumblr or Flickr. And it was for Lenny Letter. And I got super excited. And it was like for five illustrations. So that's kind of like what opened my mind into like this world of like illustration and commercial art. Because back then I was just doing digital drawing without... I I had no clue what was going to happen after graduation. So... That was kind of like a good thing that happened because I realized it could be like a career path and I loved it. And I kept doing, I kept working with them for a bit. So yeah, that's kind of like how it all started. So these first forays into doing commercial or client-based work, what was that experience like having maybe not had that previously? I'm just uh, curious to know more about some of those initial projects or you know, if you were starting to seek out more things like that, or if just by sharing your work online, um, you know, more commissions started coming to you? Yeah. So for sure, the first time that I got uh, that our director reached out to me and shout out to Laia Garcia. Um, she was like my first client. She was the art director for Lenny Letter, but also the editor. I remember I was freaking out because first I'm so, I was such a fan of the newsletter, but also a lot of my work that I had is also painting and I, I also had like digital drawing so I wasn't sure what they wanted um, but if, like I'm, I was not gonna do like a acrylic on canvas painting for like the illustration just because there wasn't time so I did uh, a digital drawing and I'm not sure like because I was so inexperienced the way I sent in sketches the way I like presented my work I think it wasn't the best like that first time but she was so kind and she was like, oh, maybe we were like looking for something a little bit different, but she kept commissioning me. And I like for like, I'm for real for her, grateful for her because looking back, I know I messed up a lot and <laughs> she was like so patient. So that was kind of like the first time. And the, I kept doing that with them like every so often, like I did a bunch of illustrations with Lenny until they closed. But back then, because my undergrad was not in illustration, it was more like fine arts and studio art. I had no idea how to reach out to people. And 
basically a recline I got after that was like they finding me somewhere like I don't know where like maybe my website or again Tumblr or something like that or maybe from those other publications so after that I know I worked with Red Bull Music Academy and I cannot remember who else but like clients were not that many they were like kind of like spare and I think they were just finding me and when I started getting more into it and reading more about like the illustration career and that kind of stuff, I realized that you actually need to reach out to people and you like need to be proactive. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. So I started being more proactive, like in reaching out and like updating my Instagram and like being more present. And I think that made a difference for sure. Yeah. And what did that actually look like? Um, I'm wondering for any maybe newer emerging illustrators out there who maybe haven't yet had that client experience. Um, what did that outreach look like for you? So there are many ways to do it, but I think at the beginning, I again was messing up a lot because I, I didn't know how to properly do it. I was sending like very long emails and maybe not attaching work. So now I know because I'm also working on the other end. Like I just started my job as an art director at, at the post. I know kind of like how you're supposed to do it. So like maybe just like introduce yourself. It would be great if people reach when people reach out to say what they're interested in. Like if they're looking to do more like food illustration or fashion illustration, if they're good at fast turnarounds, that's great to know. Uh, maybe include some like past pieces uh, attached as well but just like tiny files because you don't want to clock someone's inbox with like huge files. And yeah, follow up because sometimes people don't reply, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to hire you. That means that maybe they're busy or not. you're not the right fit right now. But if you keep like doing it every month or so, I think that's good. But also like don't email every week or every day because then you're just going to be like really annoying. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think that's great advice. And how were you finding, um, or who were you reaching out to? Like, were you seeking out, you know, art directors of various places? Like, how did you know or identify you know, who would be the best contact? Yeah, so I think Instagram is a great tool for that because I do follow a lot of illustrators and a lot of them, including myself, when, when I get a commission, I thank the art director and I tag to their Instagram. And a lot of people do that. So if you see something that you like and you're like, oh, that's very cool, uh, you can go to the art director's page and that's when you start like looking for their emails. A lot of them are not going to have their professional email listed, but I wouldn't email them to their personal email or DM them on Instagram because that doesn't look professional. So... I think that's when tools like LinkedIn and kind of like things like that start being very useful just to find the professional, um, the professional email. And there are some publications like the Washington Post, for example, like once you have their names on their page, they do have their professional email if you wanted to email them. I know that's not the case for every publication, but I think just like Googling and searching on LinkedIn, you can find the actual like emails or you can also guess it, guess if you know, I don't know, I'm trying to think, like if you know the New York Times is like nyttimes.com or something like that, you can start playing with their name, last name, and until you find the right email. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that's something that we talk with artists about a lot, um, just this idea of outreach and being proactive. But it's helpful to know or hone in on what that actually looks like, especially in different industries. I know we've talked with some studio artists about how to um, kind of pitch your work for potential projects. And so um, knowing who to look for, what to include in your pitch, 
and you know how often to reach out is useful information. So what were some of the other things that were starting to happen for you right out of undergrad? Did you um, start looking into graduate programs soon after? Um, I know eventually you ended up going to MICA, uh, or were you kind of seeing this as a potential career path and just, you know, really pushing the freelance front? When I graduated from my undergrad, I started working as a designer for a startup magazine in DC. And... I didn't have a lot of design experience. So most of my experience was either studio art, like painting and like digital art. And um, I was doing freelance on, the t- on top of that. But working at that magazine uh, showed me that kind of I really like design and I was passionate about, about it. I started to fall in love with typography. And that's when I decided to go to grad school for graphic design because I didn't have that training. And I feel like with design specifically and typography, there's a lot of things that you might need someone to hold your hand. You know, like, I feel like fine art and drawing, it's more about self-expression and like, you can find that path on your own, but I feel like design and technical things like that, uh, it's good to have someone kind of like to train you. So I decided to go to MICA for that reason. And also because I knew that the program was very open I wanted to learn those skills, like I wanted to learn typography and branding, but I knew I wanted to learn those to support my art and my illustration. I wasn't looking to become like a fully, like full on like graphic designer, only doing branding and typography. I just wanted the skills to support my other interests. And did I see that you graduated during COVID? (laughs) Yeah, you saw that correctly. I think (laughs) my graduate. I'm so curious about your experience going to school through COVID and and graduating and kind of were you were you in school before COVID started? Like being able to experience grad school pre and, and during the pandemic? Yeah, I was able to experience it both ways. So my first year of my MFA was fully in person. And that was really fun. And I also got to like connect with people. Life is a little bit different when you're in studio. Like I'm all for like online education for whoever wants it, but I do like that kind of like peer to peer connection that happens in the classroom. And so everything was fine. And then we were gonna have our grad show in May, which is like what we've been working for the entire year and uh, COVID happened. And so we didn't get our grad show uh, I, we had like basically everything ready. We had gallery space assigned, material spot, but that didn't happen. And I remember back then it was like, oh, maybe like in a month everything will be okay. Uh, maybe we we will have like a graduation. It's gonna be like a month thing. And still like we have not gotten it. So uh, for us, it wasn't as bad just because uh, it was only like a couple of months at the end. I think maybe like one or two months at the end. But I know, for example, for for the students that were like a year below me, I mean, they had like their whole grad school experience like that. And that must have been terrible, I think. Yeah, we had talked to someone earlier in the pandemic that was kind of at the process of starting grad school in the pandemic. And they were like, I don't know what's going to go on. And so to hear kind of your end finishing your your grad school through. Yeah, in a sense, I feel like I was lucky and my cohort was lucky. We didn't get our show, but we got to experience most of our grad school pre-pandemic. So people were able to do internships in the summer. And I don't know, it's it's just so different. Yeah, do you feel like that impacted what 
happen next for you in that summer following, um, like your ability to find opportunities or did you already have things lined up or, you know, were you sort of forced to take a pause? Um, like how did that impact, uh, graduating into that environment? Yeah. So it definitely impacted like job prospects when I graduated before graduating, I had talked to two places and it was kind of like almost like a done deal. Like we had talked about it. And I was kind of like deciding. And then when I graduated, like both of those places, like one of them laid off a lot of people and the other one was like, oh yeah, we're not hiring right now. And that it was the case for a lot of people in my cohort as well. So mm-hmm. around the same time, I started to get a lot of uh, commissions and like freelance work because I guess things like photography may be harder during the pandemic because you need like a whole team and crew to be present in the space. So I started getting a lot of like freelance illustration commissions. So that was great. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think that's when like my client list started growing a lot. Uh, and also I was able to apply for a job that started remote and I was with them for a year. And that was really great. That, that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And I also know that when I graduated, my plan was to move to New York eventually. And that mm-hmm. has been like completely, that completely changed just because Even if I could go now, I feel like my life now is rooted here. And I feel like the pandemic has been so long, like I've grown older. I want more space. (laughs) I'm I'm not, I I don't think I can live that life anymore. You know, like (laughs) tiny apartment. Yeah. (laughs) So you had no plans to move to Washington, D.C. after you finished grad school? I mean, I was here That was like the plan to stay here. So my husband works here. And so the plan kind of like was like either we both move to New York or I move to New York and he stays here. And we kind of like it's not that far. So we kind of like could commute or take the train a couple of days a week. So we were definitely looking into moving. But after that, we are more settled here. And yeah, I feel like also the job with the post like and his job here and space. I don't know. I feel like. At this point, I'm staying in D.C. Uh, I feel like it's still enough of a city to feel like a city because I do love being kind of like in the city. I don't know. I feel like I grew up in Bogota, which is like Colombia's capital, and that's like very V.C. So I'm not I, I'm not good like for like small towns or anything like that. But New York, it's kind of like the other extreme, like it's too V.C., too expensive. So I feel like D.C. feels like a good compromise. We kind of skipped this over, but we didn't talk at all about your process of coming to the States and and deciding to go to school here. Do you uh, want to talk us through that a little bit? Sure. So school here and in Colombia is very different. Uh, growing up, I never had plans of coming here. but So I started my undergrad education in there. And it's very different in the sense that they're not art schools, I feel like. Everything are, they're like universities and you pick your major as soon as you go in. So it's like a five-year career choice and those five years are completely devoted to what you're studying. So you don't get what you get here sometimes with like general education requirements or things like that in like different universities. So I was doing my undergrad there and then I met my then boyfriend, like now husband, he... Uh, is also from Colombia, but he was living in the U.S. and all his family was uh, in Colombia, so he would come to visit. And I also had friends in Miami, so I would go visit. And we dated like that for for like a year. 
and this was super crazy even like for I don't know it was super crazy for my family but when I was very young like turning 19 we decided to get married and so I came with him and my family stayed there I like when I tell this to people they're like they I think they think like oh maybe it's like normal to get married that young in Colombia it's not <laughs> it's not people get married like when they're 30 or something but yeah <laughs> so it was like a shock for everyone so I came with him while I got my paper sorted out I that's why I stopped studying for a year and that was like really hard on me because again as I tell you I'm like driven so seeing all my friends from Colombia like continuing like their their university like studies while I was like doing other things yeah that that was kind of rough so but yeah one everything once everything was sorted out I went back to school and yeah as I told you not like my dream school by any choice but starting out like that was kind of like was what was available school here is so expensive in the u.s uh compared to like other countries even state schools so so yeah that's what i did thankfully a lot of my credits were transferred so i had only i only did two years here so yeah that's kind of like how i got here and then both of my husband and i we both knew we wanted to like move up north either new york or dc so when we came here i started uh, grad school in baltimore and yeah, so now we're both here. So you were commuting to Micah when you were going to grad school here? I was actually, yeah, but I was in between, like I was in a really small town called Odenton. I don't know if you're familiar since you're both from, since you both went to Micah. I feel like I don't know the, the I don't know a lot of the like smaller areas around. Yeah. like around Baltimore I know some but not that one yeah so it's a small town and it's kind of like perfectly located along the train along the mark train and it's like right in between DC and uh, Baltimore so I was living there because I was like going to grad school like in Baltimore but I was also teaching at this nonprofit in DC Um, so it was kind of like the perfect place for me to be like while that happened I would also drive sometimes and it was a lot it was really far it felt like yeah. 30 minutes to 40 minutes sometimes, but it was like a good compromise. So right as I graduated, I knew we, I, we wanted to move to a city. So New York was the first choice, but then the pandemic happened. So we came to, to DC. Going back even further, did you always know you wanted to be an artist? Was art something that you, or I, I guess you had mentioned that you weren't sure if you, or you weren't sure if you were going to come to the States or not. But uh, I guess, did you know art was the career that you wanted for yourself and and does it look the way you expected <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I I always wanted to be an artist I just didn't know that it was like a like a career path but so when and I also didn't know I wanted to come to the U.S. like I never it was never part of the plan to come so when I started my undergrad studies in Colombia I was doing art but I had no clue what I was going to do like after graduation uh, I mean, the dream was to like sell paintings and, but you know, like living, being a really, really successful artist was like really hard. So I was like prepared for the wars, you know, like my parents sometimes would worry, like, especially in Colombia, I feel like people have more, I don't know, money for, and there are definitely more opportunities here for artists than like in a country like Colombia. So of course my parents would worry, but I was like, yeah, I'm not doing it for the money. I don't care. Like if I have to do like other things after graduation. So looking back, like I know like my 13 year old self would be like really proud of like where I am now. And sometimes I like to remind myself of that because when you're in that place, it, 
it always feels like like it's not enough you know like I w I'm always looking for like the next great thing so that's a way a good way to, to ground me because if I tell my like teenage self like oh no you're gonna be like getting commissions and you're gonna be able to do stuff that you like that's it's gonna be okay but yeah I had no clue when I started out I also wanted to ask you more about the relationship between some of the day jobs that you've held and the client-based work that you've done, um, because it seems like you have a really active freelance career, um, but are also working currently at the Washington Post and then previously at Nickelodeon and NBC News. And so I'm, I'm wondering how how you've navigated both of those things in terms of, you know, has there been overlap? I noticed that some of the places that you've worked at have also been freelance clients of yours. Um, so just curious if you could kind of talk about, you know, how you've been navigating both your freelance work and day jobs. Yeah, for sure. So with the post, I started very recently, like I think it's been a month or two. So I still have, oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and um, some of that, like I just took a, like a holiday break. So I haven't been like doing freelancers actively, uh, but I, yeah. before working with them full time, I, I was freelancing with them. So most of my freelance work came at the same time that I was working uh, at NBC. And so the way that I would see it is that I would only kind of like take on projects that I would really love and also thinking of them as like something that I want to see in my portfolio, maybe something that I'm not doing at my work. I think coming from like, I don't know if it's like an immigrant mentality or not, or if it's just me, but I do like to have kind of like a safety net of like having a job, you know, that's going to like sustain me and pay me my salary and get to do what I love outside of it. Maybe not being so like dependent on it. Like I don't want sometimes, sorry, I think I'm rumbling, but um, <laughs> like sometimes uh, that gives you a freedom of taking some jobs over others. Like when it comes to freelance, you know, having your steady uh, paycheck so you can pick whatever, what, whatever you're really passionate about. So when I was uh, working with uh, NBC, I got to work with a lot of clients that I really admired. But at the same time, I got to say no to a lot of things that maybe were not, um, that I wasn't as interested in. Yeah, I know Nicole and I have talked before on the podcast about how you kind of have to decide what works for you, whether you need, like whether it, your personality or working style or, or life needs the stability of a, a regular paycheck and, and a job that's going to be consistent or whether it caters more to a freelance lifestyle where you can kind of take on whatever. But it sounds like being able to do both, you've really been able to, to choose the stuff that works for you and say no to stuff that you're like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, for sure. And it's like similar to painting I compare it to. I do love painting and I feel like that's like my first love and I will always want to do it. But um, I have a really hard time selling my paintings. Like when people reach out, I'm like, no, it's not for sale. Like a lot of the things that sometimes when I show in galleries and stuff, like I don't put it on sale because I feel like those are like my babies. So I think like, oh, if I were ever to that like full time, I don't know how that would work for me. You know, like having to depend on that to sustain myself and like having to part with things that I really love. I don't know, it's kind of weird. So. At the moment, I really like that balance of like being able to 
do still like a job that is very creative uh, on my, as my day job and that sustains me and get to do like extra fun things like outside of that. I was going to ask if you were also actively seeking out freelance projects while you were um, working at NBC News or um, because you had the stability of this day job, if you would just um, take on projects as they came to you, you know, were you kind of trying to grow this end of your career simultaneously or was it more of, you know, a creative outlet from the work you were doing uh, at NBC? Yeah, I think I reached out to a lot of people before kind of like when I was starting out and as soon as I graduated, that by the time that I had started working at NBC, people were reaching out to me. And I guess it's kind of like a snowball effect. Like you get published somewhere and someone sees it and then they commission you. And so there was a point that I no, was no longer reaching to people and they were coming. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of like when I was able to be more like picky on what I took on. I still do reach out to clients that I think I would love to work on, work with, but it's no longer editorial work because I feel like I've already kind of like done a lot of it and I'm doing it also like at my job and like I do want to do more commercial stuff. Like I've been uh, blessed to work with some clients that I really like, like HBO Max and Disney, and I realized that that fits more what I want to do outside of my job, you know, like it feels like those projects tend to be longer. Uh, it tends to be like more extensive because sometimes editorial is like so fast paced that you get to one drawing in a day and then another one in another day. So it's not so much like a full fledged brief. So I do want to look f- uh, for more commercial projects, but those again are harder to get by because there's not as many as those as there are like uh, illustrations coming out. So yeah. Yeah. And these are places that you had originally reached out to just out of school or was this a product of the kind of snowball effect um, once you started getting published? The the commercial ones uh, were part of like the snowball effect because again, <laughs> again, I just realized that you can reach out to those people like very recently. I, I was like, what, yeah, when I was navigating uh, illustration as a career, I was like, okay, I get it. Now you can reach out to like the art directors of publications. I never crossed my mind that you could also reach out to like commercial uh, clients. So once they started reaching out to me, I was like, oh my God, that's an option too. So, so, okay. so far, the ones that I reached out to, nothing has panned out. So the ones that I've worked with uh, have reached out to me. So Disney came to you, HBO Max came to you. They did. I don't know where they yeah. found me, but <laughs> that's awesome. Can you? Are you able to talk about those projects and kind of what uh, what it was like working with brands and, and businesses at that scale and and sort of approaching? I guess going further into your approach to a commercial commercial project versus editorial. Yeah. So I'm gonna talk about them kind of like in an overall manner, just because I don't think I can go like very much into the details. But um, with commercial clients in my head before working with them, I always had this picture of like, oh, they're going to be super controlling or like, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of like a preconception. But because of both of the projects that I work with them and the ones that I work with other companies, I feel like the like companies are kind of like shifting their mindsets. And so when I got to work with them, they were very great at being like, oh no, we we want you to for your voice, you know, we want you for your style. Like they were very kind of like encouraging. So I was like, oh my God, I was not expecting this, but it was great. And that's why I fell in love with that even more. And that's why I want to do that more. Sometimes even editorial can feel like 
they give you more feedback than commercials sometimes i feel like it's been my experience so both of them were great of course timelines were way longer just because i feel like they need more approval like sometimes editorial is so fast-paced that it's like the art director sees it and the uh, editor sees it and then they approve it and it goes to print and it's like really quick paced and if it's bad you know like it's just gonna be in print for one day. So if it's like not a great illustration, it's not like the end of the world, but I feel like with commercial work, they do have like more stakeholders, the budgets are way bigger. So there's a little bit more like of like approvals needed, but at the same time, I do love how those projects turn out because you have more time and like more support around them. Yeah, it makes such a big difference when you're able to spend more time with a project and not have to rush it and be able to like, I don't know, add the details that matter to you that like are the reason you love doing what you do, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that happens with art a lot. Like I sometimes I see drawings that I do very quickly and I'm like, oh, I wish I had done something else. Like I feel like sometimes for like art to work, you need to take your time and maybe take a break off and see it with a fresh set of eyes. And when deadlines are so short, you are not allowed to do that. So having sometimes those delays and like responses or like having to wait for someone else to approve it is good because you get more time to kind of like explore and see if some things would work better. Do you have any advice for artists that are looking to do like either commercial work or editorial work like from your experience do do you have any words of wisdom for like I don't know how artists can approach those kinds of projects and be able to like advocate for their needs and and make sure that they're creatively protected but also their voice is heard if that makes sense yeah I think something that's very important is to have kind of like a group or a peer group that can help you out like having friends that you can ask for advice and be honest about like pricing and things like that because again like if you went to school for that I mean I'm sure professors may have covered that but when I was starting out like I had no training in that so I was undercharging I was also like having no clue about copyright you know like signing contracts that could be like oh we'll own this like whole thing like we own the whole rights uh, for like, I don't know, $300. So kind of things like that, that you're not mm-hmm. aware of. So having like a strong like group and talking about it publicly, I feel like sometimes people are afraid of talking about money or like how much they got paid for a project. And sometimes, yeah, you cannot say it because of like NDAs and things like that. But if you can, I think it's good to have that in the open. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just going to benefit everyone just to be transparent know that everyone's kind of like getting paid equally or if someone's getting paid less they could ask for more so that would be like one piece of advice and the other one would be in order to get those clients and to do that work to for real for real like do not copy anyone I feel like that's very cliche like but don't follow trends because people will find you because of what you do and what's unique to you Um, I know, for example, my work might not be suitable for everything because it has like a lot of textures and might not be like maybe good for like, I don't know, tech brands or something. But uh, if you start doing following trends a lot, then there's no reason why they're going to want to hire you and not the other person that's doing the same thing. Yes. Are there other uh, professional resources that you found or found helpful um, in addition to consulting peers and other illustrators? Um, I'm just curious if there are things that have helped you with um, some of that self-advocacy or negotiating contracts, things like that. 
yes um there's of course there's this book wait i have it here i think it's the graphic artist guild handbook um yeah. oh <laughs> yes i just got my last edition it's really thick i haven't read it yet i just go to the pages that are, are of interest to me but yeah that's great <laughs> because it breaks down uh, rights, prices, things like that. And of course, you don't have to charge exactly what it says there, but it's like kind of like a good guide. Um, there's also this website, which I'm trying to find. I think it's... Yeah, and we'll include links to all these things in our show notes, so we can always add it in after the fact. There's this other site called, called lightbox.info, um, and there you can find rates for projects that people had worked on. So if you're not sure like what a publication might pay or what a client might pay, you can actually Google, go there and search for the company and it will show rates that other artists have um, submitted. And it's anonymous, so you can actually submit what you've been paid. No one's going to know, but at the end of the day, it's going to help the industry. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, we love talking money and transparency and the need for more transparency in how we talk about money because it's so easy to undercharge for our time and to assume that like a, a rate that's presented to us is fair when it probably isn't yeah well, and just that light bulb moment like you said in realizing you could reach out to certain people I think that applies to negotiating too like sometimes it just doesn't occur to well, I mean, that was my experience as a young artist, just the idea that you could negotiate or that it's expected. Um, so I feel like that's freeing to realize that, you know, you can actually ask for what you need. Yeah, for sure. I feel like as artists, we always feel like, oh my God, I'm so lucky to be here. And I felt like that. I still feel like that, you know, like I'm so lucky that they contacted me, so I'm not going to be like annoying or, but you got to get past that because at the end of the day, if they're reaching out or if they're hiring you is because you have the skills and negotiating is always good. I mean, worst case scenario is that they're going to be like, oh, we cannot pay you what you ask for, but this is the best we can do. And you can either take it or not, but um, you're never going to know if you don't ask. Yeah. I'm also wondering if there are things that um, have been surprising or that you've learned from working on the other side of it. Um, Because you mentioned how your experience as an art director and editorial designer kind of taught you what to look for when it came to pitching your work, like pitches you receive. Um, But I'm also wondering if there have been other things either on like the communication end or um, just the process of working with clients that you've learned from kind of working on both sides. Yeah, I think having like experience on both ends, is just like really different. Like I realized as an artist, as an illustrator myself, I have some like, people that I really admire, that I love their work, that are my favorite illustrators. But then as an art director, I feel like, oh, that might not work, you know, like it might not fit the brand or it might not. So I feel like you have, like as an art director, you have to look more uh, for the brand, you know, like look out for what you're doing and what you're presenting and the story. Uh, So it it requires kind of like a set of, a different set of glasses or, yeah. So that would be one thing. But uh, the other thing is that, I mean, being responsible, like answering two emails on time, uh, sending all the files that you're asked for, that's huge. I mean, it makes life so much easier when you don't have to reach out again, like, oh, and, and please send me this that I also ask for. Uh, I mean, everyone's human, so like, of course, you can cut people some slack, but I know I try to be 
like when I'm on the artist side, I try to be like super on top of everything, which that that is like the not so fun part, you know, like getting being on top of contracts and invoicing and that kind of stuff. But it's something that that comes with the job. And like if you if you really want to do it, then I would advise just to be on top of it. Yeah, I love that advice. And this might be like a little presumptuous to assume, but I'm wondering, um, because I also feel like this is really important as an artist, and I've worked in arts administration, so I feel like the organization, the communication, all of that, you know, those are things that I can apply as an artist, and I I hope that it makes me more professional or what makes people want to work with me again because they know that I can handle a large project or that I'm going to be on top of things right and so I'm wondering from the like editorial art director side if that plays into your decision to hire certain artists or if or if you know the professionalism is at all a factor when you're seeking out people to work with yeah for sure I feel like great work is like how you open a door, you know, like how people see you and contact you, but then how you like how good you are with deadlines, with communication. It's like the how if they're going to hire you again or not, you know, because you might be super, super talented and have like amazing work. But if you're like very hard to work with, then people might just like be like, it's not say it's not worth it and not hire you again. Mm hmm. And do you feel like it's often the case with either editorial commercial work that you were getting repeat clients? Like, are they often one-off things or do you end up working, you know, pretty consistently with some of the same places? Yeah, with editorial, because there's so much work, there's a lot of repeat clients just because like public insurance are pushing out so much work. With commercial, so far, I found it like one-off, but I feel like it's just the nature of how it works, you know, like brands are not pushing out so much like content or like doing so many shows or I feel like it's a little bit harder to get a repeat clients. Uh, I'm sure it's possible, but it hasn't been my experience. But I don't take that personally just because I know how like long those projects are and like how expensive they are. So I'm sure they're doing less of those than like editorial. But I feel like editorial because of the quantity of things that people put out there it's like a good exercising to seeing like, oh, are people hiring you again? Like, are you like a pleasure to work with or not? <laughs> yeah, um, this is just a small, quick question. But I had also wanted to ask you earlier about the lead time between when you were first reaching out to some of these places and then later starting to get contacted or hired. Because um, you mentioned that things started to snowball after you had taken on the stay job, but it wasn't this, you know, you weren't doing the outreach at that same time. So I'm just curious, like, was this a matter of months or years even? Like how long on average, if it's even possible to say between like sending out some of those communications and then starting to get contacted about potential jobs? Yeah, I think it's a matter of months for sure. I think it's very rare where you send an email and then someone gets back to you the same week. I mean, I think that had happened like once for editorial, but like, it's not common. I feel like people, uh, you, you reach out to people and they save you. They could be like, oh, that's, that's nice, but I don't have anything right now. So just like being patient is so important because you might get discouraged if you send like a tons of emails and then no one gets back to you and you, you could think like, oh, my work is not good enough, but it's definitely like waiting is definitely part of the, of the game. You need to be able to be like yeah no one's gotten back to me like in five months but that doesn't mean I'm not good it just means like maybe nothing is like a good fit right now 
but just keep sending reminders every three months or every six months and something will come out. Like there's no, I feel like if you reach out to a lot of people, at least one of them has to get back to you eventually. So just keep doing that. Yeah, don't let the rejection get you down. We all get rejected. Yeah, and like if you got into the arts, you kind of like knew that it was going to be hard, right? Like there's like the percentage of people that are like very, very successful is like very, very little. So, so you, you go, I think in my experience and from the people that I've gone to school with, like you go with the mindset that I do this because I love it and I know it's going to be hard uh, if I wanted to more like of a, like a easy way in, I may have picked another career. So just like keep that in mind and keep doing what you love. Yeah. There is something you had said earlier that I wanted to ask about regarding choosing not to sell your paintings. Cause I feel like we talk on this podcast a lot about like selling your work, selling your work, but I think it also, it's a very conscious choice to not sell your work and plenty of artists choose not to sell their work. And I, I think a lot of us make work that we very particularly choose not to sell. And I feel like we haven't talked about it much on the podcast. So I wanted to ask you more about that and kind of, I don't know, your, your approach to art that you make truly just for yourself versus the art that you're making for, for money, for a job, for work. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of weird because I, I keep painting and I'm like hoarding all my paintings and like some, some of them are like in my closet, but I just find it like very hard to part with them. I feel like sometimes I am jealous of artists that sell a lot of their paintings and, I, and that they live of that because it's like, it, it looks very glamorous. But the times that people have reached out to me like for, for purchasing, I'm like, yeah, sorry, it's not for sale. I cannot, I don't know. I feel like I cannot price them. I don't want to part with them. I feel like they're one of a kind. I do sell prints. So <laughs> that's kind of like the closest thing, but I don't know if that's going to change in the future. But again, because I do have a job that is kind of like sustaining me, I feel like I don't need to sell them to sustain me, kind of like if I were to sell them, it would be for extra money. But if I don't need money right now, I feel like I might just as well keep them. Maybe that's going to change when I keep hoarding them and I don't have more space and I need to get rid of them. But for now, I just want to keep them. I've gifted, gifted some, but I don't feel like selling them. I don't know. It's, it's very weird because I know growing up, I wanted to be an artist and the goal was like to sell paintings. But now I... I don't know if it makes sense, but it's just like how I feel. <laughs> I love it. I mean, you got to go with how you feel. And I think it's important to recognize that like our visions can change and like you can think like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I want it to look like. And then when you get there and you're like, actually, that doesn't feel right. It's important to listen to that feeling. And I like ha- have been talking with Nicole about this a lot and I just texted her the other day because I was like, I don't want to make any art right now. I'm like not feeling art at all. Like, do you ever feel this way? And she was like, yes, of course. That's why I have like different things going on. So if I don't feel like doing one thing, I can do another thing. And I started feeling that when I turned a lot of my art or pretty much all of my art into work and like the, the joy of it kind of went with it. And I'm trying to start the process of like, reintroducing art that is truly just for me that is just what makes me feel fulfilled and stuff that I don't want to sell that I I don't want to get rid of that I want to you know hold on to and cherish as my own or maybe gift to people that I really love so I appreciate you talking about that because I'm so curious I'm like how do, how does one make art for fun 
again i don't remember <laughs> i know i feel i feel like that with my digital drawings which when i started doing digital drawings it was for fun it had no like purpose and now most of my digital drawings if not all of them are for commissions so i don't digital draw for fun like it took the fun away like it it is still fun as a job and it's like i feel lucky that i get to do that for a living but it's not something that i think i'm gonna do like on a sunday when i have nothing else to do that's when I would go to paint. And I'm glad that no one has, ta has taken away the joy of painting <laughs> because if not, then I don't know what I would do. And it was similar to knitting. Like I started knitting, um, my grandma taught me and I had ha I was having a blast. And then I started an Etsy shop, which is like now closed. And I started getting tons of orders and like knitting a lot. And I was like, yeah, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just started crocheting and my mom was like, you should start putting crocheted blankets in your shop. And I was like, that defeats the point. <laughs> yes. And I saw this somewhere. I mean, Sorry, I think mom. it was going around on the internet, but like you don't have to like monetize all of your hobbies or like what you love to do. I feel like that sometimes take away takes away the joy of it. Yeah, I think that's good for artists to hear, though, because, again, like so much of our goal as as kids or as aspiring artists is that our work is going to sustain us one day. But I think there is that risk that, you know, you're this thing that you love then becomes your job and becomes work. And so how do you still like carve out aspects of, you know, of this thing in order to keep that passion alive in order to, you know, like retain the love that you had for it or find different types of art making that are going to serve as purely creative outlets and yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear. I mean, even in your decision to kind of uh, like commit to a day job that gives you the stability so you don't feel so pressured or that you have to be constantly, you know, saying yes to everything or taking on all these projects that you're not really excited about. So I appreciate that you seem to kind of create that boundary in different ways. Yeah, I think it's important. It's an important boundary to have also with your hobbies and... Uh, what you said about creating different types of art i think if you're feeling stuck that's a great way of getting out of it like if you're a painter maybe try ceramics or if you're a photographer maybe try drawing like that that type of art that is just for yourself that is not going anywhere that you're not going to try to sell and it's not maybe not going to make it to your instagram is like so valuable like at least it's going to keep you like inspired and interested because i think that when people lose passion for what they're doing i feel like other people can tell I don't know, I get this, like maybe there's not a change in quality or something, but I feel like you can tell like when people are not m that much into their work. Yeah, I feel that. And maybe maybe I just recognize it in my own work where I'm like, oh yeah, my soul is not in that piece <laughs> <and> it shows. <laughs> no, yeah, I feel the same way too. So that is one of my goals for this year, to keep painting and paint more just for myself and take less uh, freelance work if I can't you, you know like only take what truly truly I love yeah we're recording this right after the new year um, do you have any other creative goals that you're you're thinking about or kind of learning experiences from the last year that you're like want to do more of that or never doing that again <laughs> yeah I want to rest more I think my personality is that of like a people pleaser <laughs> so it's hard. It was really hard for me to say no to things. And I've been getting better and I've been saying no more. But at the beginning, it was really hard. And so I would get burned out a lot. Um, and I still, it still pains me to say no to things that I may want to do, but I may not have time. It's like so hard. So 
that is another goal just maybe say no to more things to be able to have some time to rest uh take care of myself yeah do art for myself maybe work out i've never worked uh, i've never exercised in my life so i want to start you know like <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you for saying that <laughs> fellow um anti-gym person over here <laughs> yeah no and if i work out it's gonna be like in my home or something i cannot do like <laughs> gyms or anything <laughs> Yeah, I, I highly recommend the uh, the YouTube yoga world if if that's your speed. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's free and you can learn a lot for sure. Definitely doing more of that and trying to burn out less. In the pandemic, it, that was really hard too because I feel like I was getting so much work and I was like, if I was taking most of it, just because I also felt like grateful to have that work, especially in such a hard time for everyone. But I was like. It was hard to enjoy too because I mean with lockdowns and things like that. So I don't know. I'm gonna take more care of myself next year. This year actually. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that theme that feels like it's been emerging from conversations we've had on the podcast with other artists and also behind the scenes. I just feel like the importance of rest and taking care of ourselves has just been coming up a lot and so I'm I'm very <laughs> aligned with that energy for 2022 that, you know, we can just, I don't know, let go of that hustle mindset a little bit and, you know, take care of ourselves so that we can keep keep doing the things that we want to and love to do. Yeah, for sure. Blowing that for us this year. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I used to think that my, like, creativity and my body and my energy that it was all just like a, a endless resource that could just go and go and go and now I'm like no I, I cannot <laughs> I can I can absolutely deplete these resources and it takes a real long time to recharge yes for sure and not only like how tired you are but like how excited you feel about the work I feel like when you do a lot of the same it starts becoming like formulaic like you know what to do and you know how it works and then you stop exploring and it kind of like becomes like, like a chore. So taking some time off definitely works. I just took a break off for the end of the year for the holidays and it was great. I didn't do any work. <laughs> yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, this is a little bit of a segue, but because you've just started this new role and in your past roles where you've been, again, like working on the other end, uh, like working with artists, if you found or like how you've been able to balance that not just time wise with your freelance projects but I'm always curious I feel like some artists we talk to try and keep those lives very separate you know it's like they have two almost like adjacent careers and then other artists have really found ways to merge them together and I know you know as someone who's worked a lot of different day jobs um in in my own career i feel like it's always and like various like levels of demand uh that were required for me um you know i always wondered like to what extent should i be kind of open about my like this other life that i live you know like my goals or ambitions as an artist or will it be perceived as 
like interfering with my day job. Um, like for example, if I'm working on a freelance project and you know, I do a lot of painting and would paint murals. So uh, like on more than one occasion have had to use some of my vacation time in order to finish a project. But I don't know if that's something that I want to like tell my coworkers that, you know, oh, I'm taking vacation so I can work on my other job. So I'm just curious if that ever comes up for you or if, yeah, like how you've been able to kind of blend like both of these parallel careers. Yeah. I mean, again, with this role, um, it's very new. So I still like, I'm still like navigating that. But previously, I feel like the team that I was with, they were like super supportive in that sense. Like, I mean, I post everything on Instagram, like mostly everything I do. So it's no, there's no way of, like, there's no hiding. (laughs) Yeah. There's no concealing that. So, um, I feel like it is tricky though. Um, but as long as my personal opinion is that as long as you're doing a good job at your day job, whatever you do outside of it shouldn't like be a concern for everyone else. Like if you're doing great at what you're doing, at what you're supposed to do, and then you take time off, like what you do there is like your time you could sleep you could eat you could paint whatever like you shouldn't you shouldn't ha- I feel like you shouldn't have to explain what you were doing or like feel ashamed for it but yeah still navigating that here I have not had that happen yet um so we'll see <laughs> TBD yeah and I wonder how much of it is just I don't know like our own perceptions or concerns because I have to say like I I don't think I've ever experienced like it hasn't become an issue I think it's more just things in my head that I sort of wonder like you know to what extent but I also feel lucky that I've had a lot of um, really supportive teams and workplaces that you know they're excited to follow your journey as an artist so for sure Um, and I think I like to think so uh, full disclosure I have anxiety and I think I read something about like (laughs) I read something about like how to help it and things like that would actually get me anxious in my previous role like because I was working with other publications or something so like the first time I I got a commission I was like and I posted it I was like is this gonna be an issue it wasn't but in my head I always think like worst case scenario what could happen and it's like worst case scenario they're gonna let you know and you're like okay I'm sorry or worst case scenario like the worst case scenario of all is like you get fired and if that happens you can find another job I think but you know like I feel like once you get into that mindset of like what's the worst that could happen things start looking less serious like less bad and and you're like more free to what you really love yes I love that method of like (laughs) working through your anxiety I I use that too where I will work myself up over something and I'm just like oh my god this is going to be the end and then I'm like well what what if it actually happened what's the worst thing that could happen it's like actually yeah is that really that bad (laughs) with the the community I have around me with the support system with the the skills that I have with my like personal like drive and and work ethic it's like I'll figure it out I'll find a way and I think it's so easy to think that the worst case scenario is going to happen but even that worst case scenario like there are ways to work through it and it almost never happens yeah Yeah. it almost never happens and like people are human you know like I feel like the first time if something comes up and it's the first time you do it I feel like they will let you know you know like oh maybe don't do this and you could be like either like oh I'm gonna do it regardless and then I'm, I'm quitting or something or like oh I'm sorry I'm not gonna do it again and that's it yeah oh before we hopped on the call we had talked a little bit about how did you say you'll be 
teaching at MICA soon? Yes, next semester. I mean, I think it's a it's basically there, I hope. I mean, people are still enrolling and you know how things can change if people drop classes, but so far mm-hmm. I think it's happening. Will this be your first class that you're teaching or have you been teaching classes before? It would be my first uh, university class. Um, I was teaching before at after school and summer programs at this nonprofit in DC called the Latin American Youth Center. Uh, which is like a great place. I was teaching like graphic design and illustration and photography to youth. And I really loved it. I mean, being with youth is so great. They, they're like so smart and like so talented. So, so I'm excited to do that again, you know, just like be in touch with the young people. <laughs> yes, I've never done any teaching. I don't anticipate that I will be doing any teaching. How, how do you approach teaching or what are your what are your thoughts what are what are you thinking about going into this new role so I'm very lucky I'm, I'm gonna be co-teaching with another professor that has like way more experience I actually uh GTI for her so I was like her teaching intern when I was in grad school so so she um will do more like of the theory part of it and I'll do more of the like design uh critique sessions so it feels like a perfect combination and a perfect ease in because uh, I have someone like so experienced next to me that kind of like will guide me. So, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, I did uh, do GTIs again when I was in MICA. So that that was great because it gives you like hands-on experience on like grading and talking to them. And like, I'm excited to see how this transition to like uh, university students is because again, I was teaching youth and even though that was voluntary as well, I mean, they're they're different, of course, like their age group is different, like they're teenagers. So, and they're they're basically for free. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to see like how college students who are like really driven, who really want to be there, who chose that career. Like, I just want to see what they can do and like guide them. So very much looking forward to it. And also looking forward to see how I balance that because it's going to be a night class. So back when I was at NBC, I was also teaching at the after school program. And so that was after work. And this will also be after work on a night class. And I think we were planning on subclasses being uh, at school. I wonder how that's going on. That's going to happen now with the like pandemic, like 3.0 that we're going through. But um, we'll see. I think right now everything is going to be remote. Just who knows what's going to happen with Omicron. Yeah, yeah. As of, I think I said this before, but as of right now, we're recording the the first week of January, and uh, numbers are high again. <laughs> yeah. Do you anticipate that this class will be remote for you, regardless, or is there a potential that you would be commuting from DC to Baltimore to teach in the fall? So um, we had talked about it being mixed. So some classes uh, fully remote, and then for like presentations or final critiques, like for it to be in person. I think that plan still stands. Wondering how, again, if that will happen, because you know, if school closes, then there's it's gonna be fully remote. I do wanna be in person sometimes, just because the energy is so different. And when I was teaching after mm-hmm. school to the youth, in person, they were great, but then um, they were a little camera shy when you would do remote. And it gets really hard to talk to like, a like a room full of people that are it's all like black screens like no cameras no right. one's participating so 
I hope that I get some in-person uh, classes. And if that happens, then yes, I would be commuting. I would t be taking the train and probably like spend the entire day working there and then at night be at the class, which is like five to 10 or something like that. Those classes are so, I mean, you went to Micah, so you probably remember those like late night classes. <laughs> yes. Oh yes, there are many, many a nights I should not have been doing this, but just like walking home alone in the dark at like 11 o'clock. I'm like, oh, I'm going home from class. <laughs> just walk around Baltimore. Oh my God. Yes. Uh, probably not a good idea. <laughs> but uh, what year did uh, both of you graduate? Uh, 2013. Yeah, yes. it was 2012. Yes. Oh, okay. I feel like I'm getting to the point where I don't even remember the own like my own dates and my age and I'm like I don't <laughs> when I don't was know. that again I think, I think I graduated in 2013 I think I'm 31 I'm not sure I know that Ten happened to ago. me with my birthday <laughs> oh with the pandemic because I I went in being I think 26 and now I'm like turning 29 and I'm like I have no clue like how old I am with those years it felt like missed birthdays you know like mm-hmm yeah, I still feel like 2018 was like last year. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I... Wait, am I 32? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good sign. <laughs> I think I turned 32 in like a month. I'm not sure though. It might have already happened. Who cares? Well, <laughs> yeah, what is what is time anyways? I sure don't know. Well, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would want to share or discuss or any um tools or resources that we haven't mentioned yet or uh like bits of advice or learning experiences you would want to share i mean i do watch a lot of youtube and listen to podcasts so that's a great resource also skillshare i'm gonna plug my class i have a new class that i did Ooh, with them yeah, for it <laughs> for editorial illustration so i kind of like go again over pricing and like finding clients, but also like completing an, an illustration. So before doing my class, I used to watch a lot of things like that. And even Adobe, they have like a YouTube channel and they bring like professionals and they do like live streams. So I feel like just seeing how other people work is really helpful. Yeah. Oh, and amazing. include links to all of that in our, our show notes and, and on the on the website with your episode. Yeah. Check out Caddy's Skillshare if you want to step by step on editorial illustration. Yeah, get some real numbers. Yeah, for sure. And use my link. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll we'll get the the right link in there, so you can you can get it all. Get that referral uh, bonus. Yes, you got to. <laughs> yeah, I feel like what's so amazing now is just that there really are so many resources out there, and you know, I think. Well, you mentioned earlier that like having a strong network of peers and like a cohort that you can turn to, which I think for a lot of us, the school kind of provided that is really valuable. But, you know, if you're like whether or not you have that, I just think like the amount of free resources that are out there um, on YouTube through podcasts, like there are just so many ways to kind of familiarize yourself with an industry or like hear from different artists talking about their journeys and careers. So, you know, hopefully we can help contribute to that. But I think it just, you know, it's great for, for emerging artists today. I feel like there just weren't, um, you know, there were definitely some resources when we first graduated, but it was a lot of just figuring out what, like where to look. And, you know, now there's so many platforms out there. 
Yeah, that's a great thing about the internet. And I wonder how people did it before. Like now you can also get jobs without being like in a major city just because like internet allows you to like show your work and get clients. But I'm guessing before it would be really hard. Like you would probably have to live in New York, carry your print portfolio, visit places in person. So in that sense, I think we're living through a good time that we can like everyone can get work regardless of where they are. And there's a lot of free information. Yeah, just look up people's email addresses, reach out. <laughs> it's all possible. For sure. Before we wrap it up, uh, will you let us know where listeners can find your work, where they can follow you online, where they can see your, your beautiful editorial and commercial work and, and, and see all the things, where they can see your Skillshare? Yeah, for sure. So um, you can find me on my website, which is my name, K-A-T-T-Y, Huertas.com. And also on Instagram, Instagram is probably the best way because I it's the one that I update most frequently. Like I post regularly there. Skillshare class, uh, also you can find me with my name. And I also have a Twitter, but don't use it as much. But yeah, follow me there too. Just follow everywhere. Yes. Perfect. Thanks so much, Caddy. This has been really fun and it's great to get to talk with you and hear about your work. And I just appreciate how open you are about finding freelance projects versus day jobs and talking about the relationship between all those things um, and just creating time and space to make work for yourself. I feel like that's an important reminder, um, especially when a lot of our conversations are focused on how to uh, sustain a life and a living through through your work um, it's good to remember just to step back and you know find other creative outlets and make sure to take time for rest and make work for yourself yes uh, it was really fun thank you both for having me and i cannot wait to see how this turns out and all the other episodes oh yes thank you so much that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. Thank you.